Welcome to Time and Materials, the podcast covering the tough topics for growing early stage professional services firms. I'm your host, Chris Hart. The podcast today will be summarized in the Time and Materials newsletter. You can find that on Substack and at my website, chris-hart.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-A-R-T.com. Now on to today's episode. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about selling professional services businesses and mergers and acquisitions or M&A more generally, uh, investment banking sales processes. And to have that conversation, I am joined today by Steve Burnett. So welcome, Steve. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Obviously, you and I have known each other for years, or maybe not obviously, <laughs> but for the audience who's listening, who doesn't know you or is hearing about you for the first time, it'd be great for you to give a little bit of background about uh, what you've been doing and how that's relevant to what we're talking about today. Thanks again. I'll keep this very brief, but kind of describe my background really in two different phases. The first phase of that, or the early part of my career was spent a lot in and around capital markets, both on the buy side and the sell side. More recently, have transitioned to the corporate side. You know, We spent some time together at Level. Now I'm working with other startups and also advising on the side, particularly around scaling and also liquidity events. Makes sense. And I think you know when we were talking about getting together and doing something on a podcast like this, I think one of the things that resonated with me about your background is that you had the investment banking background, and so you've seen these kinds of private equity style deals and uh, investment banking sales processes. Obviously, we went through one together. So I think sure. one of the things that you bring to this conversation that's really interesting is just being able to represent that perspective, those kinds of viewpoints, but also the perspective of running finance and services businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at my background and you see kind of that capital markets foundation and you think, oh yeah, he's a he's a finance guy by trade. But really, I view myself more as an operator, right? My, my enjoyment and kind of the value that I feel like I add in startups is really this, the scaling, really kind of those those messy, early chaotic stages, which is really what I enjoy the most. Yeah. So when we started having the conversation about getting together for the podcast, I think I was just in the kind of finishing phases of putting together the first post that I had done on getting ready for a sales process. Sure. And so I think as a starting point for this discussion, let's talk through what the actual sales process looks like, what that actually means from an investment banking perspective. And I know when we've talked about this in the past, you've had a kind of way of of organizing the different phases of that process. So maybe, maybe as a starting point, do you want to talk about how you think about a sales sure. process with an investment bank? Yeah, so let's, we'll specifically define it, right, as liquidity event with an M&A sort of feel to it versus any sort of other type of liquidity event today. But I, I like to think of it on more of a timeline perspective, right? There's the early stages of prepping, you've got the idea about going to market, what you think it might look like, right? You might be starting to procure some advisors to help with that. Then there's kind of the the middle stage, which really could be broken down into two parts in my mind. It's really kind of the prep with or without an advisor, depending on your, your path forward, right? We can talk about strategic versus more financial oriented buyers in a second. The second part of that is really the post LOI stage, right? So you've got all the work together, you've done your pitches, right? You're, you're, you're kind of starting to get engaged with a, a specific buyer or in some instances buyers, right? There's a lot of work that goes in there. And then it's really the kind of the the close or the post deal sort of phase of things, which comes with its own sets of tasks, but also, you know, what is the new reality for you post-transaction? Makes sense. So I, I think as we talk through this, clearly you've got the perspective of having been a CFO, you know, generally, but also being the leader of a finance function in a company going through this. And then, you know, you and I have had the benefit of working together through one of those. As we talk through this, 
Maybe as a starting point, we start off with that first phase that you mentioned of, yeah. you know, kind of picking an advisor. Talk through from your perspective, you know, someone sitting in a CFO seat, what are the sorts of things that you're thinking about? What are the, the things that are really important in that process, in that phase of the process? Totally. I think step one in my mind, right, is is there's a lot of, I call it sort of business maintenance sort of components to it. So that's data reporting process documentation or, or just process in general around things and then really getting yourself in a spot to be ready to start drafting that narrative of how you're going to pitch the business, right? That leads into more of the narrative phase, really working closely with a CEO in terms of how do we want to pitch this, right? We can talk about it more, I think, later, but right, the, the way you pitch a business through this process is totally different than you would selling a specific product or a service, right? And so, you know, your, your advisor, if you're using one, will help you a lot with that narrative, but it's it's kind of getting all the components together to shape that sort of narrative. It's procuring advisors like we talked about and an example of what that might be, right? So if you're using a broker or a a traditional banker, right, to really kind of hold your hand through that process, it's finding them support on the accounting side, support on the legal side, tax if it's it's relevant. And then finally, kind of some more, uh, I'd say, specialized advisors like, you know, a a market research provider, if you're going to do that sort of study, a Q of U provider, if you're going that way from the accounting side. It's really kind of the the getting ready phase of we've got this idea of what a transaction would look like. Let's start to shape what we need and and what it would take to get that done. Yep, yep. And just to uh, maybe fast forward, so Q of E is quality of earnings, and we we might talk about that a little bit more for the the non-finance folks. But I agree with you. I think from the CEO's perspective, too, thinking about how you choose the people that are going to help you through the process is super important. Sure. Some of that I touched on in, in the earlier Post, but I think one of the things that you know, I think you you conceptually know this or in appreciate this in the abstract as you're choosing an advisor, but you're going to be talking to that person daily, sometimes including nights and weekends. For <laughs> not better, sometimes, lots of times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, at least for some parts <laughs> yeah, of the process, yeah, for, yeah. for the better part of like six months. Sure. And so having someone that you know and you like and you trust and gets the business is super important. So the only thing I would add is as you're thinking about people to help and specifically choosing an investment banker know specifically who you're going to be working with, at least at like the partner MD level and make sure that you really, you know, you're compatible with that person. Sure. Part of it is the financial outcome, but part of it is like you're going to have the closest working relationship with someone that you've probably ever had. Yep, yep. And I would say it's just one kind of key point is the last point you kind of made there around them telling the story, right? That That is really the most important thing in my mind, right? Like, how do they tell the narrative of your business? Do they really get it, right? I mean, that that is going to be the secret sauce of when they're having those conversations with potential buyers, right, without you being there, right? Are they in a real way sharing that narrative in a compelling way that that would convince people to buy you? And I think the other thing that you mentioned that's, that's super important as we get ready to go into the next stage of this process is that process of selling a services business to someone else is a different type of positioning or framing of the business than what you do when you're selling your services to someone who is buying them. Sure. The way that a strategic buyer or a private equity firm is thinking about not just your business, but just like the gap that they're trying to fill or the hole they're trying to plug or the expansion that they want to have in their business 
is a just it's a very different way of thinking about the world and i think that's that was probably a big aha moment when you go through it for the first time absolutely yeah it takes a few reps right and it's always good to kind of get those reps under your belt whether they be internal or you know with some investors just at an early stage but the inherent conversation the inherent key pieces of the business the metrics that you talk about the business they're totally different right than you would pitch in a different or internal or even a sales setting right so i think kind of having that rhythm getting that sort of you know, repetition is definitely helpful because it's usually pitching the business in a way that a CFO or a CEO historically hasn't right prior to that point in time. Totally. Okay. So that's kind of talking about the the first phase of things, getting ready for the sales process, recognizing that you're going to run it. You've got the right people, but I think you really kind of hit the ground running when you get to the the kind of second phase that has two kind of components to it that you were mentioning. So maybe spend a little bit of time talking about how you see the that second phase or maybe the the first you know phase 2a happening sure. where you you've got the the people on board to help you with run the process and now you're now you're getting ready to actually run the process yeah i think i think the first phase of that right is is really more tactical in terms of the get ready so data decks conversations all that kind of stuff whereas the latter phase is more of for each that point kind of inflection, we, we described it as an LOI earlier, right, phase, where that's more negotiation and conversation, right, followed by diligence. So the first piece of that, right, I'd say kind of building off of that last phase, right? So it's taking everything you prepped, working specifically with your advisor if you're using one, kind of orienting all that data in a way that supports the narrative, right, that you have on how you're going to pitch the business. And so that's everything from financial data, leading indicator or KPI sort of data. There's an element of, of cleaning some of that up, you know, through like quality of earnings, like we talked about audits, if they've existed, understanding how those have been treated. We talked about kind of a, a market study as well, which would be happening during that phase of, you know, let's get a view of the TAM and narrow that down specifically to our market opportunity to help kind of support this narrative. With that on the super tactical level, right? A, a data room is being, being built by the bank they're helping to construct this massive presentation or, or SIM, SIP, management presentation, whatever it may be at that point in time that's going to contain all of this information, right? And so I think success really in this phase, right, is having a good handle early on in terms of what elements of data are out there, what you can produce very easily, what you can produce in a recurring manner, right, to support this sort of narrative, because that's ultimately going to lead for success. Because whatever you go out with initially, that's what you're going to have to constantly refresh through the process, you know, from a data perspective, um, talking specifically. The bankers will, I'm sure, tell anyone going through this process to make sure that one of the the best things you can do during this phase of the, of the process is just continue to hit your numbers, right? So if you're forecasting right. a certain amount of revenue, if you're forecasting a certain amount of EBITDA, if you're, you know, whatever it is, whatever the KPIs are, you absolutely need to hit them. If you don't, it may not be deal ending, sure, but it will be disruptive in the process. And so it, it's really important to have a good handle on it. I think to your point, though, the other thing that really strikes me is any data that you produce in this stage, however challenging or difficult or time consuming you think that it is, before you know what they would call in market and talking to people right. yep after you're in market and after you're having management conversations with combining your management team with the a prospective buyer's management team any data that you're asked to produce like it's automatically way more stressful it's sure. more time consuming so if you're having problems at this stage it's 
going to get worse. Yeah. And I think financial data is a no brainer. I think two areas that most people tend to overlook, uh, at least at this stage until they're asked the questions are really HR, more human element data sets that are right, right. Especially in services businesses, how are we going to combine these teams? Where's the data on these people having some history there? And then also legal and contractual, you know, just understanding exposure, liability arrangements, various different things, right. They're, they're coming through in contracts. You know, everyone's focused on like, Let's put the forecast out there and other things, right? But very quickly, especially in diligence, you get down that path where it's like, oh, we might not have our house in order here too. So that's you know two areas I would call out that are usually overlooked, I'd say, early on. Yeah, I think one of the other things that people sometimes find out the hard way is that they're, they're being asked to slice data and analyze data through different dimensions than sure. they may have historically. So you may yep. have a really good, just to make something up, like an, a really good employee census file and really good utilization data on your staff. But all of a sudden, you might get asked during diligence, hey, um, analyze this by the city that they're in or analyze it by the core skill set that they have or you know, do it on a time series basis, looking at it a different way than you've historically managed the business. And again, it's not necessarily deal ending to not be able to do that, but it, it certainly is not – it's not the way you want to start the conversation. For sure. Yeah. And I would, the only comment I would make there, right, is us being software technology oriented individuals, or at least involved in tech enable firms, right? Is we haven't we haven't mentioned solutions yet, right? And I think it's solution agnostic, really, it's to get your process down, you know, get your data in order, whatever that may look like, knowing that there's going to be different orientations that come up very quickly that you're gonna need to produce. Definitely. The way that you've described it, the whole point of this part of the process is to arm the bank with the data that they need to be able to construct a cohesive narrative that they put into a big deck. The abbreviation is a SIP or a SIM, depending on the bank. But the idea is basically this company information package is what goes to prospective buyers and that they're using and you will use to describe your business to them, again, in a way that is probably going to be pretty foreign to you because it's not the way that you sell to your customers. Right. Yeah. And that naturally leads into a phase, right, where you are pitching, having those conversations, you know, whether they be kind of early conversations with potential investors, whether they be more detailed in nature as things progress into a management presentation where it's a lot more thorough and a deeper dive into the business. But that's kind of the bridge in between these sort of two phases I would call out, right, in terms of the process. From a management team perspective of the company that is running through the sales process that is for sale, there's the kind of experience for really any of the management team involved, the CEO, the CFO, anybody else who's involved. You go from this period of time where you're very focused on providing data to the bank, who's very friendly, but also very demanding, but, sure. but very friendly, <laughs> but knows what they need to be able to produce the information, to all of a sudden you've got this deck that is now like the center of the universe that you're now going out and, and talking to people about. And maybe talk a little bit about what that experience is like the first management meeting versus yeah. like the the 10th management meeting. No, and I'll, I'll ask for your perspective on this as well. Obviously we went through this together, right? I think the first one's always hard, right? Cause it's the first time you're hearing these sorts of questions that you've somewhat prepped for, but can never expect fully initially. Right. So you're, going out, giving this presentation, you're getting peppered with questions. You're starting to get in the flow of, of what that conversation looks like in this sort of manner. 
by a few reps of that, you've got it down, you've got slides memorized, you, you can anticipate some of these questions because they're repetitive in nature in terms of the, the topics, at least, right? They might be asked in different ways. By the 10th one of these, you're in a pretty good flow. I've noticed through these processes, you know, working with yourself and others, right? You know, by, by the 10th one of these, you're using each other's lines, right? To, to answer questions and you're kind of trading the narrative and who's giving the narrative to give it a little different spin on things. But it does feel repetitive. It also, you know, a lot of that is driven by how wide of a process your advisor is running, whether it's, you know, a hundred firms that you're sending decks out to or, or very concentrated with like, you know, five, or even if you're going direct with a strategic, that could be a totally different experience, right? But the more conversations, the more reps you have, the more routine it feels like. And I think, you know, it gets to a point where you can pretty much walk through the deck by memory almost, right? And and when a question comes, you know exactly what slide it's it's referring to. Yeah. The comment that you made about it being repetitive definitely resonates with me. I mean, there, you know, you get to the point where it's strange when you get a question you didn't anticipate. Sure. And that's <laughs> yeah. like, whoa, wow, that's a, that's a different way of thinking about it. You know, we haven't heard that the last eight times. And so I, I do think you're right in that in the early stages of it, it's super stressful because the way that you're talking about the business feels unfamiliar and the stakes are really high and it's super stressful. Uh, I think for, for most people, it's probably super stressful because it feels unfamiliar. The outcome feels really binary to you at that stage. Like, man, like this company that I'm talking to is going to decide whether they're interested in us or not based on the outcome right. of this meeting when you're first talking to them to then getting later in the stage where to your point, it's like, oh, like me and my buddies are going into this meeting and we're going to have <laughs> a good time and it's still really high stakes, but yeah. at least I don't feel like I'm figuring it out for the first time. I think one of the things that I think is important for people to try to keep in the back of their minds when they're having these meetings is as much as this is about a prospective buyer evaluating your business, it's also about you evaluating them. And absolutely using it as an opportunity to ask questions, not feeling like you're on the defensive because you're you're not, and trying to shape your own kind of perspective of regardless of whether they're willing to make us an offer that we like, do we want to be part of this company? Absolutely. To put a fine point on that last one you made, I would say the repetition is not necessarily a reflection on the buyer or the industry. It's more or less, you got to be thinking about the buyer is really trying to figure out how to value this thing, right? And so the repetition is a reflection of that. It's you know similar sort of things that ultimately lead to metrics that might be similar to value the thing. To your point, right? This is you know from the early on, it is your opportunity to evaluate a potential buyer as much as it is theirs to evaluate you. And I think it needs to be kind of a, you know a reciprocal or a mutual relationship for the deal to consummate a successful deal, right? And I'd say you know, that could vary by strategic, by, you know, if you are going more the f- sponsor route, right? The, the relationship and, and how do you interact is different, but that is a- as important as, you know, the valuation and the transaction itself is, is this the right working relationship and are they bought into our vision and the ideas of what we're trying to build here? Yeah, and I think the asking questions, this is probably the thing that took me a little bit, a couple reps to get comfortable with is, you know, as much as you're in the room to get peppered with questions by them, using it as an opportunity when they, you know, when, when a prospective buyer is challenging you on, you know, well, geez, do you think, you know, digital transformation demand is going to hold up? Sure. Like, sure, I can give you my perspective, but what do you think? You know, like, how do you think about the business? And that's a f- totally fair question, not in a defensive way to ask, but to understand, do they think about things the same way that, that you do? Absolutely. I mean, every buyer will have some sort of thesis on the space, right? That's driving their interest in you. So, you know, that will come in a lot of different flavors and a lot of different orientations. So it's really important to kind of 
as quickly as you can in a respective way, respectful way, I should say, try to tease that out of the potential buyer, right? Because I think that ultimately is what you're after, right? Does their thesis on our business or on our industry uh, and how they invest or how they acquire fit with how we think about the business, right? That that it's ultimately ultimately the the million dollar question. Yeah, and before we we move out of this stage, one thing I, I wanted to dig into a little bit more that you mentioned was this idea of of a strategic versus a, a sponsor or private equity. Sure. And so, in most of these types of transactions or these sales processes, ideally, the the bank is asking you, you know, do you want Right. To, what type of buyer are you interested in? Are you interested in strategics? Are you interested in private equity? Are you interested in both? Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about your point of view on how those two prospective buyers are different. Sure. Yeah, I think I think in general, right back to your comment on the, the bank will be asking you, there definitely is a level of a maturity in size uh, and feel for a business that strategics might not entertain as early as sponsors. And by sponsors, we mean the private equity or professional investors, right? Just given that, you know, if you think for a very large strategic, like, you know, at Accenture, since we're talking about services, right, a small $10 million business doesn't really move the needle unless there's some very unique delivery function that they don't have today that they think that they could grow in an exponential way with their own business, right? So I think there's kind of that prequalification, right, of, of depending on what your maturity in the field of the business you might be lean towards either a strategic or a sponsor but in terms of like the key differentiators right outside of deal itself we'll hit that first right with a strategic you know it's a full acquisition in most instances right so you're selling the whole business to a you know a competitor someone that's in your industry someone like that right whereas on the sponsor side that's more of a usually majority but can be minority stake depending on the situation right sort of deal where you might not be selling the full business and there's an opportunity for you know, as you call it, a second bite at the apple, right? Where you can work closely with that partner to grow the equity value of that business. And you might still own a piece of that. And that is, you know, much more bigger in terms of the ultimate outcome there with the, with the sponsor leading you. In terms of holding periods, right? With a strategic, right? It's it's indefinite in nature. And that might influence what, you know, post-close of deal and the role and the contributions look like for a founder or owner or CEO or CFO. And the strategic side, you are the operator, right? Depending on the type of firm, you know, I'd say majority of strategics would define themselves as professional investors and not operators. You will find the strategic investor who does define themselves as an operator. They're, they're relatively rare. They will be more involved with the day-to-day operations. But a sponsor is really looking at, I described it, it's kind of leasing the business versus buying the business, right? They're wanting to be in this business for three to five years to inject capital resources and also make connections to help exponentially grow this business better than you would have on your own. And, you know, and within that bounds of that holding period and with the hope that there is some exponential growth that they can then resell to a strategic or to another sponsor down the road. And, you know, typically that's anywhere from three to five to seven years. Yeah. I think what you're getting at is why it's so important as a management team and as a founder or CEO or, you know, one of the owners of the business to understand really what you want and what you're willing to right. do. Yeah. Because the lived experience for the management team after a strategic deal can be different than, you know, and oftentimes is different than what it is for a deal with private equity or a sponsor, as, as you said. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you thinking early on in the process, right, you need to be intentful about what does that post-event look like for you and the team and what do you guys want? And I think that sort of influences the path as you think about potential buyers. One thing that I would add, I'm curious on your opinion on this, I think if you haven't dealt with private equity 
before, haven't dealt much with private equity, it can be tempting to just kind of lump all private equity together and just say sure. like, well, you know, geez, look, it's, you know, private, all private equity is the same and my experience is going to be the same. And I think the reality is, is that there's actually beneath the surface quite a bit of difference from one private equity firm, or there can be from one private equity firm to another. Sure. And so I guess my, I would say number one, if you're willing to consider private equity at all, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's yeah. different variations of private equity, but also it really highlights why it's so important to talk to, especially a private equity prospective buyer, because understanding what their expectations are in the hold period, understanding what their expectations are from a management and leadership perspective, understanding what they can and cannot bring to the table is super important because they're, you know, they're all different and they also, they approach deals differently. Some are super financial engineering oriented, some are not. And so there's a lot to unpack if you're considering yeah. And I think we're talking about a founder specifically, right? I think there's a the question of how much energy and how much passion do you have in the business as a reflection or a post event with this, right? And I think that will definitely influence the type of sponsor talking about specifically here you, you would choose to partner with, right? There are some that are very good in terms of providing very strategic capital, maybe helping in at a board level in terms of driving strategic value and, and initiative and improving process. And then they'll kind of step back, right? And let you enact that. In other instances, right, there's more, as I referred to earlier, as operators who, you know, want to be involved with detailed decisions or the execution of decisions or changes in process. And depending on the founder skill set, right, you want something that's complementary or in some instances the opposite of what you think your strengths are to really unlock the full value in the business. But also too, in terms of the level of you know, involvement you you see from an outside party and and how that creates value is important and that kind of teases apart the universe of of private equity pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So far, we've talked about the first stage, which is you know the getting ready. We've talked about the early stages of the second phase, which is getting the investment bank all the information that you need to get to this point. Sure. Now we're kind of at the end of the the second phase where you're talking to maybe strategics, maybe to private equity, maybe to both. And hopefully if the process is going well, you've narrowed the field or your investment bank has helped narrow the field to a couple of potential buyers or maybe one buyer. Right. All of this is headed to what you alluded to earlier than an LOI, a letter of intent, right? Sure. So maybe talk about the perspective that you have on going from, okay, we've talked to a bunch of companies. We know who's interested. We're getting ready to sign an LOI. What does that look like and what does that transition into into the next phase? Yeah, I think it's an interesting inflection point in that you've reached a stage where you believe you've found a partner or partners that are a great fit for yourself, right? And so very early on, you're loosely discussing what you think the terms of a transaction would be, would be, which is kind of the purpose of the LOI. Once that has been established, right, it's it's really, it's a crazy phase where, you know, it's as fast as you can within reason, doing the necessary work through diligence to get to a point where you can sign on dotted line a purchase agreement, right? And so what's all on, encompassed in that? So it's, it's less kind of broad level narrative and strategy and vision and, and really kind of taking that one level deeper in terms of the conversation. So, you know, as a founder, be expected to be pushed on why you think this is the right move, be pushed on why you think your pipeline yields to X sort of results, right? It's really them kind of fine tuning how they want to value the business, but also it's where you spend a lot of time figuring out what is the low hanging fruit or really the first kind of three or four or five initiatives, the sponsor in this instance or, or strategic really wants to dig in with you to unlock that value and how do they think they can unlock that value. That's really uncovered in this phase. 
And then subsequently, you know, it's where you, you will have sleepless nights in terms of providing diligence items, whether that be documentation, whether that be updated numbers, whether that be legal contracts and agreements with your outside parties to fill this data room that essentially the buyer says, hey, we need this amount of time to go through all of these documents to get comfortable with the transaction and justify this valuation uh, until we sign a, a purchase agreement. Yeah, I, I think you alluded to a couple things there. The sleepless nights is not a, a figurative expression that's very literal. Because I think one of the things that's striking about this process, if you haven't been through it before, is how breathless the whole thing feels. You sure. know, once at least this was my perspective, I think this was yours too. Once if you're in it, once you get started, it feels like at every step in the process, you're kind of getting ready for what you think the next step in the process is. To, to your point, you know, you're getting ready and you know that you're gonna go and be in market. But then all of a sudden you're in market and you've got to have all these conversations and you're like, oh geez, okay, well. I'm going to be having all these conversations and then I'm going to get to an LOI. But then like the LOI gets signed, you think it's a huge relief, but then you wake up the next morning and you've got a list of like 40 things that you couldn't possibly have imagined that all of a sudden you need to get turned around. Mm -hmm. And I think the overarching kind of theme as you go from this, from one stage to the next, at least again, from my perspective was it always feels like you're, you're aiming for something else. And then as soon as you get it, it's like onto the next thing. That's just as frenetic to try to like get completed. And so talking about due diligence, I think one of the things that I'd be curious to to have your perspective on is, are there things in that that due diligence process that you can anticipate or get ready for so it doesn't feel so novel when you're in it in the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we've talked a lot about the financial side of things. I think that's really expected. I would say the expectation is you will get pushed very hard, particularly on forecast within that phase, right? And be and needing to be able to support that within reason because that's ultimately going to drive value. The other things I touched on too earlier, but it's probably a little bit more expansive, is some of the more of the tactical stuff, right? There might be a point where you get asked to present every contract you've ever signed, right? Either with customers or with external employees or internal employees. Those are sort of the things that like, you're so caught up in like, what is the narrative and the story supported by financial data? You forget about like, oh yeah, like they're going to want to look at things like, tax exposure. They're going to want to look at things about from an HR side, making sure our hiring practices right or correct and understanding any exposure we might have on the tax side as well. You know, I think a lot of those you can lean on your advisors that you're using to help get you prepared for some of that and or help collect some of that data. But ultimately, those seem very tactical in the grand scheme of things of like, yeah, I don't really want to worry about employment agreements, but ultimately it is a necessary item to check the box for a successful transaction. Yeah. And I think some of this is slightly different depending on the type of buyer. Every every buyer I think is going to want to see them, but the level of scrutiny, for example, that a a public company is under, if they're buying a company and need to be SOX compliant, they really want to find every single signed agreement. Absolutely. That that sounds simple until you realize, oh, geez, I have to go, you know, I, I, I really need to go find everyone. And that it can be harder than people think. Sure. Yeah. So we're talking through now the kind of last stage of this process where you're, you know, you're trying to get to the deal being completed, the LOI is signed, you go through due, due diligence. Ideally, this all leads to the, both the buyer and the seller concluding the transaction. Yeah. What happens after that? To me, it's the most 
exciting. Well, it's really such an anticlimactic event in my mind, right? If you think about, especially if you're doing this in a remote environment, right? The kind of closing process, if you will. So after weeks, months of hard negotiations have gone on, right? You all agree to terms, you wake up on the day of signing, right? And you're kind of waiting for the last check the boxes from the lawyers. Agreements are out there and you're just waiting for signatures to be released on these documents, right? So it could happen at any point. There's always an 11th hour fire drill of some sort, right? Big or small, as a founder particularly, right? You're just kind of sitting there waiting until the point of signature and when everything kind of is consummated. Once that happens, it's basically a period where I always look at myself and say, what's next, right? You know, there's this big parade up until that point, you know, when signatures are released, it's kind of like, we did it right? Congrats. And then, but then you're on your, you're on your way in terms of being an operator in the new arrangement that you have. Right. And so it's kind of like, you know, all this excitement goes to like, okay, what's next. Right. Totally. And I I think that's the thing that is just the continuation of the pattern I was saying before, where this for six months, you've been working towards this one particular event and you can hopefully at the end of it, breathe the sigh of relief, but then you realize I have to wake up tomorrow morning and I have you know, now my job is the same, but it's also very different because I have to go tell everybody what happened and I have to start working on whatever the next stage is, whether it's integration with another company or whether it's working with the new private equity team to map out what needs to happen next. And so the moment of relief is is kind of short-lived. Sure. Yeah. And I would say in some instances, you know, hopefully this is not the case on its own, right? But you've been so consumed by this transaction that you might not have been involved in the day-to-day of the business as much as you should, right? So you alluded to it very early on in your opening, right? One of the biggest risks I see for companies through this sort of process is taking your eye off the ball of operating your business, right? So in some instances, right, things are working. You mentioned earlier when when you're hitting your numbers, everything seems to fall in place in the right way. This is also an opportunity for you to get back ingrained in the business, get everyone fired up about the new arrangement, about the new opportunities that are out there, to your point, working with the partner to figure out what that strategy is and really going and executing, right? There's not really you know a long relief period of getting this done, right? It's really, you're on the hook, as of day one, right, post-close to operate on whatever objectives you set out there with your new partner. Yeah. And I think what you hit on there is one of the things that I would say is is the most important in getting ready for this process or in being successful with the process is because especially, I think, for the CEO, but also for the CFO, so much of your day-to-day is consumed in this process in supporting the process and participating in the process it's just not possible to be as right. involved in the normal operations as you are. And so to the largest extent possible, you need to prepare anybody else on your team who can help with that to be able to step in and do those things. Because otherwise, to your point, somebody has to have their eye on the ball. And if sure. it's not the CFO and if it's not the CEO, then it needs to be somebody else. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's an element of that of like who else is brought under the tent through the process, right? And how much are they involved in this versus yourself? But Part of the success is having good lieutenants to to operate the business while you're going through this sort of phase. Yeah, 100%. So I think that's definitely one from each of us on on the key things to be successful. Anything else that stands out to you from or like particularly from the CFO perspective of what contributes to success or what you know what are the things that if you if you had to like say like hey these are the things that are going to be the most predictive in terms of a process concluding successfully. You know, what are those things? Yeah, I think from the CFO perspective, 
we've kind of touched on all of these in a small sort of way, but really the, the big three in my mind are data, the narrative, and having great advisors, right? That is, I think, where the CFO can add a lot of value to the CEO throughout the process. Having your data, having house in order, having that to support the narrative only speeds up the process, right? Because if it's not there, you have to go do it at the beginning, you know, in the very early stages of this process. Helping the CEO shape that narrative to talking to more of an investment style community is very important. Then also being able to procure good advisors, you know, some that you may have worked with, some that you haven't before. We talked about the working relationship of the broker itself, but also that holds with all advisors, right? As this is a very tough process are really kind of the three big ones I would think about for from the CFO seat specifically. All those resonate with me. And I don't know that I have a whole lot to add. I do think that you bring up an interesting point, which is somebody needs to be, or multiple people need to be watching the business, so to speak, while all of this is going on. Sure. And what that means is, I would say in every process, the CEO and the CFO are involved. And beyond that, there may or may not be other people from senior leadership involved at varying stages of the process, right? There's probably right. fewer people involved at the beginning, more people involved towards the end. But if someone isn't involved from a key function of the business, either the CEO or the CFO has to be prepared to speak to it. So probably figuring out how do you represent those perspectives that can't be in the room because they're busy actually running the business or because right. they can't be brought under the tent due to like NDA reasons or all sorts of practical reasons. So just knowing who can speak to sales, who can speak to operations, right. who can speak to HR and recruiting, because you're going to be asked questions about that. In a lot of cases, you may only have the CEO and the CFO in the room. Best case scenario, right? You can split those functions between the two individuals, right? But I think you alluded to sales and kind of pipeline. That's something that you know the CEOs usually are pretty in tune on, but ultimately the level of questioning and the nuance and the detail that they'll ask for is usually where it breaks down. So I feel like if there's usually a third person who is brought into the mix outside of you know, very tactical legal things like HR, it's usually someone with some sort of go-to-market presence for the business who can really talk to that and give confidence in the forecast. Yeah. The whole time we've been talking about this process, we've been really focused on the positive scenario where, sure. where yeah. things end well. Before we jump into to maybe some things that what happens when it doesn't go well, what are some common mistakes or problems that you've seen thinking about all the different kind of processes that you've either been part of or that you've seen from the sidelines? Like what stands out to you as cases where leadership teams may have gone awry? We touched on a, a few of these topics loosely, but just to kind of hammer in on it. One is not having kind of the good relationship between the CFO and the CEO in terms of pitching that sort of narrative. Also to, you know, if there's a founder involved in one of those roles, right? The potential buyer wants to hear the vision, the idea from the founder, but being able, whether it be the CFO or COO or whatever it may be, to support that with evidence of the success of some of that is really key for that sort of supporting role to the founder. So I think that's kind of one is not having that sort of you know, shake and bake mentality, if you will. I think the other is trying to cut corners on the process to prioritize pace is something that I see a lot. And so every advisor or bank is going to have their own approach to running process. If the goal is to maximize value and to find the best fit from a buyer, 
you never want to rush the pace, particularly if things are starting to go south with the business to force a deal through that never really ends well, at least in my mind. Whether or not the deal happens on the back end of that, it's not usually a successful or it's a great start, I would say, to the to the working relationship with a partner. And the other thing that I'd say we've we've hit two or three times now is just not having practiced that pitch enough to the investor community or the corporate development sort of community is something that I see that. And a lot of banks these days are going to have you practice for them and they'll play that sort of role just so you can have some more reps on it. But not having that narrative down is is usually detrimental if you don't have that by you know a few reps into it. On that last point, I think ideally the bank is going to have you do the first real one sure. with someone that they don't think is going to actually <laughs> be the buyer. Yeah, exactly um, right. It's kind of like a gimme or a throwaway just so that you can get a rep in with someone who's not critical to the process, Sure, which is terrible for all those first run. Yeah. Uh, it's probably mutual buyers. in a certain event, right? Yeah. They're taking the call to entertain the bank as well. Yeah. You know, the other thing, and you, you touched on this, but just to, to rehighlight it, I think the, gotcha or the mistake or the problem that I've seen from some other founders that I've seen go through this process is unfortunately just not being set up for hitting their numbers and kind of overreaching. And I think the the challenge with this is when you set out your forecast when you're working with the bank in the early days, they don't know your business well enough yet to call BS or not, right? So like at the end of six months of working with you, they can call your BS. Absolutely. In month one, they can't call your BS. And so if you're able to fool yourself into thinking that you can hit your numbers, you can't expect the bank to hold you accountable to them or to, to know that those are really feasible or not. And then if you don't hit those numbers throughout the course of the process, again, it may not be deal ending, but you're gonna the deal is going to get retraded at the end of the process, and you're not going to have done yourself any favors. So I think the only thing I would add is being honest about what you're going to achieve from a performance perspective. The only comment I'd make to that is is it's as much art as science, right? In the sense of putting a target out there that is, you know, a stretch within reason, right? And in, in that you want to get credit for the potential of what you can pull off. But you don't want to set those targets to a level where it's just unfeasible because that will get teased out very quickly in the diligence phase. And ultimately, to your point, the deal might get retraded, which, you know, no one really is happy with at that point. Yeah. So let's actually wrap up using that point and talk about for just a a minute or two the kind of downside scenarios that can exist in this. And I think, you know, we've talked about one, which is maybe you get a deal done, except you don't get it done on the terms that you expected. Right. And I think there's another one, which is you run the process, but either you don't find a buyer or the terms end up becoming such that you just want to walk away. Sure. Maybe talk a little bit about what comes next from that or how, how does a, a business that's going through that, how do they process that? Yeah. And I would just, just to kind of take a step back and define potential risk, right? More broadly of where a deal doesn't happen. And then we can directly kind of answer your question. So, I mean, I view there's there's market risk. We saw a little bit, I think, of that last year where multiples, particularly for services business like we're discussing here, were at a level we've never seen before, right? Trading on forward, forward multiples at multiples that were you know unheard of, and that's a result of a 15-year-plus bull market, right? You get a little bit of concern, usually stems initially from the investment committees down through the private equity firms. You get some second-guessing of how to value assets, right? That essentially sees some compression in multiples, more market risk there, right? I think there's the individual business risk, which we've talked about a lot of, of not hitting your numbers or something detrimental happens or there's a governmental you know, or legislation change that can drastically impact your business and lead to no success. Back to the, the last point you made, there's just 
not a fit potentially out there uh, at this point in time in terms of who has the appetite and interest to acquire you. You know, I would say valuation comes into play, right? Where the market is at might not be at a level that you feel comfortable selling. And I think there's a combination of all those things, right? So in terms of what it looks like after the two kind of specific examples that you kind of gave, right? I think there's an element of where do we go from here, right? And so it's, it's are we just pausing this till certain things like market or business risk kind of steady? Or are we just not in the position right now to do a transaction or is buyers aren't in a position to understand this business and to consummate a successful transaction at a level that we all are happy with. Right. And so, you know, I think that where that leads you is ultimately there probably is some sort of goal of going back to market down the road, but in order to do that, right. The biggest thing the investment community wants to see is consistency in some sort of trend of revenue of profitability. The moment you feel or you think it's time to put pencils down on a transaction, you're starting a clock, right, of 6 to 12 to 18 months, depending on what's going on and what are the factors of, we need to go heads down completely on this business, ignore what had happened previously. Let's use what we learned from it to operate the business and think about how we think about things going forward and talk about things going forward the business. But ultimately, we need to work on executing on our objectives in the business for the next 6 to 12, 18, 24 months, whatever the timeline might be until we feel confident on going back to market again and, and showing that trend. Because ultimately, history and trend is what investors want to see from really consistency's perspective. Yeah. You touched on a, a great point, which is learn from the experience, take away from it what you can do differently. I think going through this process once will make you much better equipped to do it a second time. Absolutely. As exhausting as that may sound in the moment. I think it's important to not be dissuaded or, or feel discouraged just because a process falls apart, just because it doesn't end the way that you want doesn't mean that your business isn't worth something. It doesn't mean you don't have a great business. It doesn't mean you won't ever be able to sell it. It just means the circumstances weren't right in that moment. I would just say it's kind of implied in your question, right? But this is really a uh, it's really a binary outcome, right? Which which causes the high amount of stress for this sort of situation. Either it happens or it doesn't, right? And so, you know, there's no kind of middle ground. You might say that's some sort of concession in the transaction, which it could be, right? But, you know, it either happens in the way that you think it will or it won't. And I think that binary nature of doing a deal ultimately is what creates the pressure, what creates kind of the stress around the event itself. Yeah. And this is why so many people don't know that a process is running because for everyone that you hear about concluding successfully, I don't even know what the number is, but several do not. Sure. And so yeah. it's a huge distraction as people have probably picked up on just from this this conversation for anyone who's involved in it. And that's really why there is so much secrecy around these things, aside from the fact that the buyers oftentimes don't want anyone to know what they're doing either. Right. And you have legal obligations to them. So we've covered a lot of ground in this session. I know there's always more to unpack with this. So maybe we'll get you back here at some point Sounds to great. talk more. Yeah. But thank you so much for being on the podcast and covering a lot of ground. And hopefully folks found this interesting. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. And likewise, I hope people find this interesting and look forward to the feedback. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Chris. All right, that's it for today's episode. You can find show notes and more posts on topics like this one in my newsletter, Time and Materials. It's available on Substack and at chris-hart.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-A-R-T.com. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast and to the newsletter so that you don't miss out on anything. I'll talk to you next time. And until then, remember to submit your time card. 